You have your Bibles with you, turn them please to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. The significance of these verses, of course the significance is it's God breathed, it is profitable for us, but this also is an important part of what our speaker is going to be bringing to our attention this morning. So follow with me while I read. This is from the English Standard Version. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Will you bow with me? We pray. Thank you, Father, for this, your precious word. Indeed, it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that we may be brought to maturity. Oh, bring us along, Lord. Our minds need to be cleared. The world's been screaming at us all week in various ways with all of its godless thoughts and dreams and hopes and despair. Oh my, we need to hear a clear word from you. So clear our minds, steady us in it. Father, we would not want to forget our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering around this globe. In your providence, you've given us uh, Relative ease, Lord, comparatively speaking. I think of your people in Ukraine. You have your churches there. Though many of them have been eliminated by this war. I pray for those who are your people there. We'll find heart, encouragement, stay strong. This will be a time for a great harvest of souls to come to Christ. As people consider how fragile how fragile life is. And Lord, I would not want to forget your people in Russia. Oh, what a conflicted situation in which they exist. I think of our dear friends in Novosibirsk. Oh, those young men I remember in the seminary trained and have gone out and pastors scattered around Russia. Give them wisdom. Give them that kind of wisdom to know how to preach, uh, encourage, Stay true to you in a very, very difficult time. And Lord, I would not want to forget your churches, your people in Florida. Oh my. Raise up mercy givers, Lord, in extraordinary ways. Churches, Christians come together. Lord, I was heartened just to hear, I don't know if they were believers or not, but the way neighbors have came into that man whose house had just been demolished. And they showed up to help him. Oh, Lord, the wonders of being in your image. Even though as unbelievers, we are prompted to do that which is helpful to others. But I pray for churches throughout Florida. Lord, of course, too many to begin to mention, but especially those in the in the area, in, in Naples, Florida, in Fort Myers, oh my, people who've been uprooted, whose lives have been shattered, changed, hopes dashed. Oh God, I pray that the gospel will come forth in great and powerful ways. 
and give us those stories as we go along. And Lord, do bring the gospel to the forefront in your infinitely wise ways that we do live in a broken, fallen world. But your Redeemer, the Redeemer Jesus Christ, gives us what we need to know and how to love you. Now, as John comes and speaks to us, Open our eyes that we'll see wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker. I must not get nostalgic. <laughs> I must not. Uh, Beth's life, my life, we're bound up with John and Rachel in so many ways of so many years. And it wouldn't be fair to speak just to the fact that I saw John sitting it wasn't quite there, but it was in a schoolhouse, and it was over on that side that he came in and sat down with his Bible open in his notebook, and we had very little to offer for youth. <laughs> but the Lord worked in John's life, gave him a wonderful wife. We knew Rachel, and God brought them together. And since then, there have been so many ways. I'll just be brief. John doesn't want me to go on with these things. I understand. But I can say this, that I listened to John's previous message to us here. I, I think we were in the COVID uh, cloister somewhere <laughs> at that time. And uh, I listened to the message twice. I'll just say personally, thank you, John. It was so meaningful. Tied so many, th some things together and was refreshing. Yes, message on suffering, refreshing. Thank you. Now I know that you're going to come and carry us on from where you were. So I'm through. You come. Okay. Good morning, family. Yes, we're going to follow through from the last time, but if you weren't here, it's fine. Both of these kind of, these messages sort of stand alone. Uh, so it'll work out for you okay. Psalm 107 verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from troubles. Troubles. We were looking and we're going to continue to look at today ways in which we participate in the troubles or the suffering of Christ that we're part, we're bound up with him. And as I have thought through these passages that we took last time as well as today, uh, you know, some, some truths in the word of God are milk truths. They're kind of easy to pick up. Some are meat truths. These are beef jerky truths. So you need to be ready with your dentures on or whatever you had to, to bite into this stuff because this is... Uh, deep and solid material. So last time, we took up a couple of passages and we talked about a couple of applications of ways in which we share in Christ's sufferings. And so just, um, yep, that's what we wanted to see. So we saw last time, number one, in Philippians 3, where it just uses a phrase that we may share in the sufferings of Christ. And we share Christ's troubles in order to know him better. And that's really an overarching theme that we'll see throughout. But suffering generates intimacy, intimacy with God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we looked at there the phrase is share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. This is a repeated theme through the New Testament. We share Christ's sufferings in order to comfort one another. A horizontal benefit, a solidarity. Suffering with Christ generates solidarity with each other as we reach out in times of sufferings. And then we move from there, and I assume if I do that, nope, that's not what's going to happen. Okay. And last time I picked up quite a bit from a Christian writer from quite a while ago named Samuel Rutherford, and we talked a bit about his life. We, I quoted him a good bit. Today I'm going to pick up with C.S. Lewis. He speaks much about suffering. Talk a little bit about him and what he has to say. C.S. Lewis, quite a few years ago, there were several, a couple of different movies that came out called Shadowlands. And it pictured C.S. Lewis's life, and particularly the latter part of his life. 
But Rachel and I saw a play of Shadowlands in a church up in Philadelphia at that time, and I thought it was better than either one of the movies. And the, the play starts out, C.S. Lewis is standing in a podium, and when not that long after he became a Christian during World War II and afterwards, he often lectured to women's clubs and flower clubs and men's clubs and on BBC and talked about serious Christian things. And so it showed him there at the beginning of this play, scene one, where he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. You've heard this probably. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's scene one. Then you go to scene two. Well, during uh, C.S. Lewis, early after he became a Christian, about 10 years after, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. It's one of my favorite books. I just read it for a third time. He wrote it in 1940, uh, or actually before some of these lectures. And it's quite a philosophical, logical, somewhat dry treatment of uh, pain and suffering. It's heady a bit. And he wrote it at a time before he had experienced a lot of pain. And he explains here the existence of pain and how pain or suffering is not incompatible with a loving and yet powerful omnipotent God. And he goes through a lot of scripture as well as logical thinking about that. Now, in the preface of this book, he claims this is something that I can logically understand, that I can see in scripture, but I've not yet grown in it. He says, I'm not that yet strong in the very principles that I'm sharing. So he, he makes a disclaimer uh, there. He had gone through some levels of suffering. He lost his mother when he was a child. Uh, he was in World War I, and at age 19, he was wounded. So he'd gone through some levels of suffering. And so here he makes some comments, and I'm going to just read, and I'm going to have some kind of lengthy uh, quotes today. And so this is part of a quote in this book when he says, When I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire and loneliness, actually I think I'll read with you, loneliness that spreads out like a desert and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery, he uses words well, or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape or sudden nauseating pains that knock a man's heart out at one blow of pains that seem already intolerable and then are suddenly increased, of infuriating scorpion stinging pains that startle into maniacal movement, a man who seemed half dead with his previous tortures. It quite o'ercrows my spirit. If I knew any way of escape, I would crawl through, through sewers to find it. But what's the good of telling you about my feelings? You know them already. You, they're the same as yours. I'm not arguing that pain is not painful. Pain hurts. That's what the word means. I'm only trying to show that the old Christian doctrine of being made perfect through suffering is not incredible. To prove it palatable is beyond my design. Pain is painful. And so he talks about these kinds of things, uh, basic theology of suffering in this book. So then you go through to scene two in this play. And this play particularly focuses on his marriage to Joy Davidman at a later point in his life. In fact, he was 56, 58 years old, first time he had been married in 1956. And he married her, and they had a few short years. She already had cancer when they were married. It went into remission, and they only had about four years of a very joyful, intense marriage with each other, and she died. And he fell into deep despair. And his faith in that time, it was agony, an emotional and even faith crisis and roller coaster. He kind of questioned God in Job style. He wrote a second book at that time on suffering called A Grief Observed, totally different than the first one. This one is heady. Grief observed is emotion. It's raw. It's his up and down feelings, almost like a journal. And at times he's questioning God. And at the end, he does come through in his faith and he makes two conclusions in that book and one is that remedial pain pain that God brings to us for our own growth remedial pain is worse than our severest imaginations secondly all shall be well that's how he concludes all shall be well with the believer
So you've walked through this middle part of this play, which is quite long. It's the main part of the play where you see these up and downs and his joy in his, in his marriage and then his agony in her death. And so now he's experienced it and you come to scene three and he's standing in a podium and it's vaguely familiar. And he says, he's, uh, says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But it's totally different. When you hear it say, him say it the second time, you have experienced with him all this agony, and you know he's saying it in a totally different, meaningful way. We all know trouble. We all know pain. We all know suffering. We experience it as individuals. We can't hear speaking about it enough because we need to be reminded over and over because we so quickly forget. Many times nobody knows the sufferings we've seen. We suffer often in silence. Sometimes our suffering's individual. Sometimes it's corporate. And your fellowship now, your church is going through troubles and something part of your lives that has been part of many of our lives for for decades it's now going through changes and some painful changes and i know you're all suffering long enjoyed friendships have sometimes been damaged here seemingly beyond repair and and, and i'm sure there's a sense of, of confusion like what what just happened what is going on but a lot of times the clock can't be rewound one of C.S. Lewis's mentors, as it were, George MacDonald, said, the Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might, su- might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like his. And so as we suffer with Jesus, he's kind of an archetype for us. He's a prototype. His example is the example that we experience, that we follow. An archetype is the original pattern or model from which all things of the same kind are copied or on which they are based, a model or first form, a prototype. That's what Jesus is, and we look to him as we suffer with him. So in these passages, we're primarily talking about suffering that comes from our association with Jesus uh, because we identify with him, not just routine suffering. It's part of being part of a fallen world. But much of what we see will apply to all suffering. So let's step into our third principle. And this will be from 1 Peter where we just read. So if you could turn back to there. And this is, we'll read the passage, but this is that we have the privilege of sharing Christ's troubles to build our capacity for joy. And so let me just read a couple of these verses once again. Verse 12 and 13 from 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you might, may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering, as he says, is part of life as a Christian, part of our connection with Christ. It's not the exception, it's the norm. But we're continually shocked when we go through suffering. We continually can ask in our minds, why me? Why is this happening now? This is not a good time for this. I can't believe this is happening to me. What did I do to deserve this? I can't wait till next week or next month where everything's okay again and I'm not suffering anymore. And so we're, we tend to be thinking that the normal life is pain-free life and suffering life is the exception. It's the reverse, particularly for the believer actually for all people because we live in a fallen world. And I think uh, Howard referred to this, but I think this is a way in which living in a, in a rich culture or relatively easy culture, it deceives us. It woos us into thinking that we, suffering is the exception, that we, can, uh, that we can purchase our way into comfort or purchase our way into safety or purchase our way out of suffering. And we can think that suffering is the exception, that everything should be good and comfortable and safe in this life. And we're willing to spend a lot of time and money to, to, to make that happen. Everything should ultimately be stress-free. And we can just kind of relax and take it easy. This is suffering 
that Peter is talking about due to our association with Jesus, suffering for the same reasons that Jesus did, means that with Jesus, we're submitting to God. That should be a normal part of our lives. It means that we're representing his kingdom. We're putting God before ourselves. We're making him our true God instead of gods of our own making. That's what suffering as a Christian means. And so Peter talks about, he says here, this suffering comes specifically to test you, to test, it's the purpose of the suffering. It leads, it's, uh, uh, it leads to trials, it leads even to temptations. In our suffering, we're always tempted to, are we gonna follow God in this suffering or are we gonna just pursue relief? Are we gonna complain? Are we gonna sin in response? Sin and respond to this fiery trial as he refers to it. It's a, a scorching trial, a trial that's burning us. It's a testing trial that fire reveals and purifies. And so Peter here is tapping into a huge fire theme that you see throughout scripture, all the way from, from Genesis chapter three when the two angels are standing with fiery, uh, fiery swords to keep Adam and Eve out of God's Eden space. And so it's this theme of we're refined by fire, we're refined by pain as God uses it to test us, just like metal is refined by fire. And just as the sacrifices in the Old Testament were burned by fire and through those people were purified. This is what pain does for us. This is what Peter's trying to allude to. It's been throughout scripture. So, all, so, so pain always brings this temptation. It always brings this temptation to get angry at God. It always brings this temptation to self-pity or complaining, or becoming bitter, or becoming self-focused, and just focused on getting myself out of this pain, comparing ourselves to others in jealousy and envy, because they don't have the pain, and they seem to have an easy life, even though their life is worse. Uh, they're not as close to the Lord. Just a, a week or two ago, just a little side note, I was reading through the Psalms, and Psalm 105, verse 19, is about Joseph, and it says that Joseph in Egypt it's speaking of Joseph when he was in Egypt, at first before he was exalted by Pharaoh, it says his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. And I think that's referring to until his dreams were fulfilled. Uh, until that time, the word of the Lord tested him. It refined him. It smelted him through all the suffering that he went through for a couple of decades of life. So it speaks of the work that had to take place in his life through suffering to prepare him to serve as assistant Pharaoh, to get him to that place, to grow him. And yet, as Peter says, we're typically surprised. He says, don't be surprised, because he knows that's our automatic, why me? And so, but he says, instead of surprise, we should replace that with rejoice in verse 13. And, do, do not be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice in response to suffering. Not my first response. I don't know about you. God, thank you for this pain that I'm going through right now. That's got to be a worked at response. It's not automatic. But this is what Peter calls us to. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Or as New American Standard says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. The implication is the more you suffer for Christ, the more you should rejoice. Beef jerky. <laughs> These are tough truths. In other words, we suffer more. The more we suffer in our faith, the more we should rejoice because we are participating, we are sharing in Christ's suffering. So that word share, it's the word koinoneo. You're familiar with it. It's a warm word, typically. It's a, it's a word of fellowship. It's a relational word. So as we're fellowshipping with Jesus, we're experiencing the same pains, the same kinds of pains that he did. And so the early church rejoiced in Acts 5. Then they left the presence of the council where they had just been beaten. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they, had, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing in our connection to Christ. And he uses this word rejoice twice. He says at the first part of verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice. 
and be glad when his glory is revealed. So he's saying rejoice now so you can rejoice even more later when Christ does come back and when he does take those pains away and that suffering away. Rejoice two times now and later. And later. And so the logic here is that the more we suffer for Jesus now, the more we will rejoice now because the more we'll rejoice when all that pain is eventually gone. Thinking through, trying to follow what Peter is having to say here. And he says, rejoice and be glad. And this word, be glad, is even more expressive. Is one of the commentators defined this word as to experience a state of great joy and gladness. This is in heaven. Often involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement. We're not all that real good at body movement now, but we will be later. Rachel can tell you my dance steps are pretty awkward in this life, but I think I'm going to be like Fred Astaire in heaven, dancing in joy and rejoicing and being glad because of what he's done for me. Rejoice now so that when Christ returns in glory, we can be overwhelmed with joy. Troubles, especially when they came, come for the same reasons that Jesus' troubles did, can teach us a different level, a deeper level of joy, a denser, more complex, more hearty and solid type of joy because it's a in-the-face-of-suffering joy, not because-of-everything-going-okay type of joy. We can learn a deeper joy through the suffering that we go through. And so can we greet pain with joy now? because we anticipate the greatest joy when his kingdom comes. It's hard. It's hard, especially when that pain's filling our whole focus and we can't hardly see anything else in life. It's right there. If this suffering would be gone, life would be okay. It's hard when that, that pain, when it's hard to think of anything else besides the pain that fills our life. This is when I'd like to borrow C.S. Lewis' disclaimer from his preface that I'm speaking about this, but it doesn't mean that I'm strong in it. It doesn't mean that I've, I've, I've learned this paradoxical joy well. It's counterintuitive. It's absurd even. But we can work at it by the power of the Spirit. We can practice it. We can train ourselves to respond to suffering in joy. God can expand our capacity for that absurd in-the-face-of-suffering joy. And so we can work to let moments of suffering trigger thoughts of God. What's God doing? God loves me. God loves me in this and through this pain. It can trigger thoughts of the gospel and reminding ourselves of what Christ has done. It can trigger even confession if there needed confession that is being brought out by that suffering. It takes intentional practice. Practice to produce an automatic response of joy to pain when it comes. We can remind ourselves uh, with Tim Keller that God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Let me, let, me, let me read that again. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Or remind ourselves of a passage like Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remind ourselves, work at reminding ourselves of those truths when we're in the face of suffering. And so, take joy. Or a couple of uh, slides once again but from C.S. Lewis, this time, uh, this time from Mere Christianity where he says, that's why we must not be surprised if we're in for a rough time. This is something we want our, to wash, these truths to wash our minds with. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him when he was first a believer and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he had ever dreamed of being before. 
It seems to us all unnecessary, but that's because we've not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. And part of that, that is to be able to rejoice and have joy when it seems impossible, when it seems illogical, when it seems absurd. So suffering generates surprising joy as we suffer along with Jesus. And so I think a question for us just to think through is how can I practice eternal joy? How can I kind of borrow back into the present that eternal joy now during earthly pain? Peter, surprising joy in the midst of pain at which we should not be surprised. We go on. We've got three today. Two, I'll speak a little longer on. The third one will be kind of quick, as you'll see. So the, uh, it's the, our fourth principle, but the second one today from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We share, or we have the privilege of sharing Christ's sufferings in order to display Christ to others. And so our suffering generates life for other people. Let's see how that works. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so here we're, we're with Paul. Peter and Paul knew a lot of suffering, so they're speaking from experience, certainly. And let me read starting in verse 7, where Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying, odd phrase here, carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Okay, he repeats it in verse 11, basically. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work at us, but life in you. So Paul's talking about how through his sufferings uh, of getting to the Corinthians and all the sufferings he experienced in his mission, they received the gospel. They got to hear of Christ. So Paul here outlines that what I see is kind of a three-point process, three-part process uh, that believers experience. And so first in verse uh, 10, he talks about we share in Christ's suffering. And so, so you have this phrase about carrying in our body, or Paul, but for us as well, carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. Carrying around in our body the death of Jesus. Paul was under constant threat, literally, of being put to death, and almost was, and eventually was, for the same, Jesus, same reason that Jesus died. And so we share in Christ's sufferings, part two, and then suffering produces Christ-likeness in us. We've talked about that already. That's something we talk often about. Uh, this suffering that he mentions some in verse 8, and he mentions quite a bit in other passages of, of Scripture, this led to, as it says here two times, it led to Paul manifesting in his body, manifesting Jesus more in his body. You see there in verse 10 and again in verse 11. Two times, more and more of Jesus' life is manifested in Paul's life because of the suffering he's going through. In our lives, Christ's likeness is being produced as we trust God so that people can see Christ in us. That, that happens as Christ's likeness grows more in us. So in that sense, Jesus, who's no longer visible in this world, can be seen through us, can be seen in us. And so suffering produces more of that Jesus in us so people can see it. Now we know that by doctrine. We know that by a lot of verses. We know that by experience. I love the way C.S. Lewis, it's, it's almost a similar passage, but I love this little um, metaphor or uh, uh, example he uses. He says, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, and he's throwing a new wing out there 
and he's putting on an extra floor here and he's running up towers and he's making, making courtyards. And you thought you were going to be in, uh, uh, made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So Jesus wants to make us more than we are. He wants to make us like he is so that we can manifest him. him. So that's kind of our second step. Through suffering, we grow in Christ-likeness. Third step that, that Paul talks about here is as Jesus comes to live in us and we manifest him, Jesus is manifesting more and more of himself to others that they can have life. It has that, that implication to unbelievers in our, in, our life, in our lives. And so he uses the word manifest twice. It's a word that's used a lot in 1 Corinthians and it's frequently used of of, Jesus, of Paul preaching or manifesting Jesus through his preaching, sharing the gospel. So he's talking here about our suffering producing Christ-likeness so that we can have more opportunities to share Christ with other people. Suffering in Christ-likeness opens the door to be able to share the gospel more. It has a, an evangelistic purpose as well. The spiritual growth that we experience from suffering can lead to more opportunities to speak of Christ. And when we do speak of Christ, it has even more gravitas, more, more, um, more credibility because of the suffering that we're going through, more compelling. And so thus we bring life to others even more effectively as we go through pain ourselves. Now, I don't know if the paradox that's going on that Paul is playing with here stood out to you. It's this death to life thing. And so in verse 10, he says, carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Verse 11, again, he says, given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So this death leading to life theme. Again, he's tapping into something that's seen throughout Bible history. Uh, all the way back, you think of uh, just a few of examples of this, but the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to die so the firstborn could live. And in fact, all the offerings in the tabernacle and the temple, those, those goats, those bulls, they had to die so Israel could live. All the offerings of atonement, Jesus died so that we could live. Paul died, as he describes in verse 8 and verse 9 here, to all those privileges and advantages he had as a prominent and up-and-coming Pharisee. He died and suffered through all of his suffering and his mission, and he talks about that in other parts of Corinthians. He did that so that they could live, so that more people could have life through his death to himself, through his death to his own desires. So this death to life pattern continues for us as well. From our dying to bodily comfort or to self-focused goals, life comes to others. Life can be shared with others. Dying to life is I would like to define my life for myself and allowing God to define life which includes suffering so that others can hear about Christ so that Jesus who's no longer visible here can become visible through us that people can see him in our growing Christ likeness and they can step into that same kind of life that attracts them suffering can be a cargo carrier for mission for evangelism our lives are not to be like a cruise ship cruise ships that kind of just wander around from this place to that place to generate comfort and entertainment for their passengers. But our lives should be more like a cargo or a freight ship that's going from here to there to take something. It's purposeful, not designed for comfort or entertainment of its passengers. So the cost to ride on that cargo ship is trouble. And the payoff is others hearing about Jesus, others coming to know about Jesus. We, uh, I have a bivocational friend who lives overseas and he's using his profession to serve Christ in a, in a closed country, someone with our agency, and he, he's already going through the suffering of living far from home and the suffering, the rigors of being in another country, another language, and especially a country where there's very tight security but through the process and, and because of his profession, 
he was approached by Facebook and offered a job that started at $600,000 a year plus uh, ownership of stock options. And so he's, he's, he thinks, <laughs> and he shared with me, he, he, he thought, well, I sure could give a whole lot to missions if I went that way. And then he thought again and realized that there were so few in this closed country who were sharing Christ, and especially after so many have left over the last few years. So he died to that opportunity. He died to that possibility, that privilege, so that he could bring life to the people he lived among. He was carrying the body of, of, of Jesus' death to bring life to others just as Jesus, Jesus did. So we suffer for Jesus so that that suffering can produce growth, spiritual growth, and that growth can then become the vehicle for bringing life to those who are still sitting in darkness. And so a question for us to meditate on with respect to this principle about death leading to life through suffering. How has suffering led to, I think I tweaked this just a little bit. Yeah, that's it. How has suffering led to growth I need that then opens the door so that I can share life with others? A practical question. How can I think through how has God used suffering to open up doors to be able to share life, to share the gospel with others? Think through that. Think through that. We expose ourselves to death in order that they might have the opportunity to receive life. We die so that others may live, just like Jesus. And then we come to our last one, and this one will be short, and you'll see why. From Romans chapter 8, where we see that we have the privilege of sharing Christ's troubles to win eternal glory. I want to focus on that word, glory. Present suffering generates future glory. This one will be short because we know the least about it. We know the least about the glory that we'll experience in the future. And I think it goes beyond the joy that we were talking about earlier. Because glory in Scripture always speaks of a kind of a weighty, substantial shining and a brightness that we'll experience in close connection with Jesus. We don't experience a lot of it in this life. It's something that we wait on and that we'll experience in the future. And so Romans chapter 8, if you haven't turned there, we're Paul again, and we're jumping right in the middle. I realize that. But he's talking about us, and if we are children, if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, there's our little phrase, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are, time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now Paul picks up on three words. You can't see it quite as easily in, in English, but in in his language, they're all one word where he says fellow heirs, that's one word, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we become fellow sufferers, that's the second word, fellow sufferers with Christ, so that we can also be fellow glorified, or co-heirs, co-sufferers, co-glorified with Christ. It's a little bit awkward in English. But the idea is if we indeed are fellow sufferers, we're fellow heirs and fellow sufferers, we can be glorified when Jesus is fully glorified. Suffering in the way that Jesus did is, is an expected result of our being his disciples, his fellow heirs. So he's picking up on that again. But again, he says, in order that, uh, I suffer with him, and in order that we may also be glorified with him. One of the purposes of our suffering is so that we can experience this future shining and glory and brightness and, and weighty uh, glory along with him. And he says it's of no comparison. And down in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Very similar to 2 Corinthians 4, where we were before in verse 17, where it says our light and momentary troubles are achieve, have achieved for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. 
It's another, another essay that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, The Eternal Weight of Glory. It's an essay that I try to remember to read once a year because he focuses so much on that. And it's so motivating and clarifying about why we suffer. He's speaking of this glory, this weightiness, this denseness to our glorious experience that we'll have with Jesus in the full kingdom. Or as he says, if you just look on down to verse 30, uh, Romans 8 still, but those whom he pressed, predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we usually think of that as we'll receive these glorified bodies, these immortal bodies that are no longer subject to death. And so I think that's part of what this glory is. But I think there's more there that just is a little bit out of my reach uh, of, of a type of... Uh, sharing in this shining bright glory because we have passages like Daniel 12 3 where it says and those who are wise so shine so shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who uh, turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so in some way we're going to be bright and shining and I don't know what that's going to look like exactly. I don't have any personal experience of this as of yet because I haven't experienced eternal glory yet but all of us will. His promises of this weighty and shining glory that, that are going to be offered to us, that we'll be part of, uh, that, are, that are thinking about that future glory can be a compensation, can be a help to us, a practical alleviation to the weight of suffering that we feel now. It will be replaced by a much heavier weight of glory that we'll experience later forever. And so we contemplate that. We don't fully understand it, but we know it's something really good, and we think about it, and it can, we can, again, bring the comfort from that back into this life. It's a promise of glory that we hold on to in our minds, and we meditate on, and we remember with which we can console ourselves in our present pain. It can be like a, a sip of cool water to lessen the thirst that comes from suffering. Suffering can produce glory. Future, present suffering produces future glory. And so we ask ourselves, how can I cling more consistently to eternity in my present sufferings? To eternal glory. And so we have these five. Let me just go back through them in this way. Here's the benefits of suffering with Jesus that we saw last time and this time. Suffering generates intimacy with God. We know Jesus better because we're suffering with him. Suffering generates solidarity with each other as we comfort one another with our suffering. Suffering, suffering generates impossible illogical joy in the face of suffering. Suffering generates life for others in mission. And present suffering generates future glory. So our suffering from Jesus opens our eyes to the pain he endured. And I, and I really think number one up there is kind of the overarching theme. We come to know Jesus better as we experience the same kind of sufferings he went through. We walk in his shoes of life. The cross is God speaking out when nothing but silence greets our cries in the face of pain. It's God speaking through Jesus' suffering. And so we must envision him not as a God sitting, sitting idly up on a throne somewhere, passively watching millions of people suffer, but we, could, we should picture him as a God hanging on a cross, suffering for us. Or John Stott says it a whole lot better, my last long quote, where he says, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, stood respectfully before the shadow of Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. 
He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. His sufferings become more manageable in light of this, or our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. Now, there's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. Or in a much shorter way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, nine months before he was executed, he wrote, only the suffering God can help in the midst of our pain. And so have we experienced loss? Yes, we have. Have we experienced loss of health and sickness? When Jesus was tortured and executed slowly. What about times of emotional turmoil and even despair that we experience? Jesus said, my heart is troubled and I sorrow to the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane. What about relational tears and destruction and strife? Well, the crowds who loved Jesus later turned against him. And he had many broken relationships because of what he stood for. Even his closest friends abandoned him for a while at the end. Or have you experienced a good life and a long life with loving family and friends and a meaningful career and solid finances that here at a latter stage of life seemingly seem to be melting away? replaced by uncertainty or confusion or pain and sorrow. Well, Jesus left paradise for a lowly and uncertain life, ending in pain and loneliness, abandoned even by his own father. Jesus stretched himself on the cross and he wielded the hammer. We can know God's pain because he first knew ours. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the stories. Sometimes it's painful to read of the sufferings and to know how terrible the sufferings were of Jesus. But as we read of them, Father, we take a strange kind of comfort because we're experiencing smaller levels of those ourselves and identifying with Jesus and because we know the great life that you brought out of the pain of Jesus and we know the life that you can produce in us as a result of the pain we're going through. Help us to remember that. Help us to grab these truths and meditate on them, taking our eyes away from the pain that we experience that fills our gazes and instead focus on what you're doing through that suffering and the eternal joy, the present joy, eternal joy, and eternal glory that we'll experience, and even the joy of seeing those in heaven whom we've led to Christ because in some way related to the pain and suffering that we've gone through. Motivate us, Father, to be like Jesus and to face suffering the same way he did. And as we we do that, we know, and as you do that for us, we know that we will praise and thank you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.